So, good day, hello. Uh, welcome to Guernsey's Sustainable Finance Week, financing sustainability, the role of private capital in the post-COVID-19 era. Uh, and I'm pleased to say, to start off the week, I'm joined by Emily Shaw, uh, Portfolio Director and Sustainable Investment Specialist from Casanova Capital. And Casanova Capital, I'm pleased to say, supporting us here on Sustainable Finance Week. And very welcome to have their support and welcome to um, to Emily to, to join me. Um, it's Sustainable Finance Week. It's a series of webinars and podcasts looking at the role of private capital. Uh, throughout the, the course of the week, uh, this week, this week, and we also have a series of associated fringe events. There's lots of material published on the website, uh, papers from various sources, all the webinars and podcasts are uploaded there uh, daily, obviously the, the webinars being live. So it's a, it's a fantastic week. Uh, we're really pleased to be able to do this. We gave it some thought in, in early June, uh, sorry, early June, uh, Easter, whether to be in early June it would be appropriate to be doing this and whether we could indeed do this obviously having moved from a physical to, uh, to an online uh, event. Uh, we're pleased, I'm pleased to say we did, uh, and we're here. And so, so with no further ado, thanks very much, Emily. Appreciate you joining me this morning. You've seen you're a stalwart of sustainable finance. You've committed, you've been involved for many, many years. Um, lots to cover today. Uh, but firstly, we're talking about post-COVID-19, but in the period leading up to the, the crisis of recent months, it's been a tumultuous time. Um, it's easy to forget that coming into 2020, green and sustainable finance was, you know, had effectively become the big thing. Um, so I just want to take back a, a little bit and, you know, ask you, as, as maybe as an icebreaker, um, from your perspective, from Cousin of Capital and yourself, um, coming into 2020, what are the three biggest themes that you saw and trends developing in sustainability, green finance, in an ESG investing, the whole small board? What are the three, key, three themes you wanted to bring to the parties that you saw coming into the crisis? Well, first of all, just wanted to say thank you for having me here, Andy. Very sad not to be on the island in person, because I know how beautiful it is, but very glad that technology is enabling us to do this virtually. Um, in response to your question, I think there's been some very clear themes coming through. And the first and probably most prominent one is that there has been a growing concern by investors about the implication of climate change. And in fact, our 2019 retail investor study showed that 87% of respondents believed that climate change would impact their investments' financial performance. Now, that is a very fair assumption, and climate change will definitely impact all financial markets, whether it be because we fail to keep global temperatures to below two degrees, which will ultimately result in a greater number of natural disasters, rising sea temperatures, land deprivation and human migration. All these kind of things are going to have huge um, economic implications and will absolutely impact financial performance. Um, on the other side is the recognition that actually a successful energy transition will in itself create risks and opportunities, whether it be the risks of investing in stranded assets or um, the profitability implications for companies if carbon prices rise or indeed the huge amount of opportunities that are arising from the expansion of new and clean technologies. Um, 
So I think it's absolutely right that that's probably been the key area of focus and should be uh, very much a focus for both investors and investment managers. The second big trend um, is a, a growing focus on the responsibility that the investment manager industry has on being an active owner of capital and using our influence to promote positive change. Um, our industry owns a huge portion of the market and through engagement and voting, we can influence businesses to change their behaviours to have a better impact on society and the planet. And we've been seeing that investors and regulators are paying growing attention to how we're using that influence to promote good and wanting to see more evidence of active ownership, engagement and reporting on the positive outcomes that we've achieved from that. Um, I'd say the, the final and growing area of focus is on um, the impact that our investment decisions have and a growing attention on actual impact investing. And what I mean by that is where you can use your investments to promote positive outcomes for people and the planet. Um, just an example of the growing attention in this area, only earlier on in this year, we saw three large charitable investors group their assets together and undergo an open tender to the asset management industry where they said that they wanted to see the manager who was most committed to ESG and to using their assets to create a positive impact. Now, being an open tender, it generated a huge amount of attention and I think they had 59 applicants which just shows there's a huge number of um, um, asset managers wanting to demonstrate that they're trying to invest in this way. Uh, we were very lucky to be chosen as one of the five finalists who went into a live audience pitch with around 60 to 80 mission-led investors who'd come to see what kind of solution we would propose. Um, and it was a huge and great example of how the industry is changing and investors are expecting more from their managers. They want their managers to deliver both investment returns and also positive impacts. So those are the three key biggest themes I'd suggest. The growing attention on climate change, um, demand for active ownership and using our influence for good and actually investing in a way that creates positive impact for people and the planet. Yeah, the shareholder active is important, um, very, very pertinent. Uh, and it's even crossed the pond to the States, obviously, with the, uh, uh, with the experience of J.P. Morgan in recent weeks. That was a very close run thing. But the, 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 sort of the, 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 um, the mandates being delivered in the UK, yeah, that's not, it's not a new thing, but it's, it's, it's the scale of it um, seems to be um, taking on a new lease of life. Did you say? I mean, did you say eighty-seven percent in your your survey on, on the green was? Or did I? I heard this. Wow, that's that's pretty significant, isn't it? I mean, that's um, that, that's that's impressive stuff. Yeah, it's very clear. This is on high agenda, and in fact, actually, at the beginning of the year, our sustainability specialists were forecasting that climate change would be the defining feature of markets for the decade ahead. Obviously, at that point, we weren't anticipating COVID. And obviously, that's been very impactful for the start of the decade. But I think climate change is by no means going away. And it's then going to accelerate and influence to how markets can and should behave. 
No, I, I agree. And, you know, you quite clearly, you know, for me, I went through sort of the, the reaction to COVID. It's almost like um, the emotional response to grief. You know, you went through various stages before you sort of dust yourself off and realise that, the, and, and as Lord Stern said, you know, climate change itself isn't going away just because of the crisis. Um, but ironically, I think you touched on something there that uh, I just wanted to maybe clear up because this is um, this, this is the first uh, podcast of the week and obviously it's been posted ahead of, of it, the rest of the event. So I just wondered if you could help our listeners for the week on a point. We undertook a survey at the beginning of the year and it was uh, one of those, um, do you know your, uh, your ESGs, your SDGs, your TCFD from your PRI? And, and in general, I mean, despite everything, almost possibly because of, the, everything and the rhetoric and the, the, the massive jamborees that have been, we've been going on, not everyone understood uh, what the differences were b- between us. And when we talk about the sustainability agenda, there's, there's very different colours and variants to that. Do you, do you sense the same confusion? Yes, absolutely. And another standout figure that our investor study showed us was that around two-thirds of investors felt they would be more inclined to invest sustainably if they had better and clearer information from their asset managers. So I think the education piece needs to happen both for the clients, but also from the investment industry so we can better articulate what we mean. Um, We've seen a huge rise in acronyms for different terms, you know, ESG and sustainable development goals, um, PRI, etc. These are all terms that mean different things and represent different initiatives, um, but cover the kind of same broad concept of responsible and sustainable investment. Um, we, we tried to help our clients out and actually created a glossary of the 50 terms of sustainability to highlight exactly what all these different things did mean in a shortened, um, consent way. So very happy to share that with anyone if it would be helpful. Yeah, that, I mean, that, absolutely on the button there. And we did, um, and I, I said it would be great to, to share it with, uh, with the participants of the week. Um, we, we did a very similar thing, discovering um, you know, the, same, the, the same confusion as, as yourself you know, in our particular area. And we uh, recently published um, some green private equity principles, basically a guide for GPs. Um, and Tim Haynes, the uh, the ex director general of the BBCA, the director general from 2013 to 2019, said that um, that the principles and practice developed by Guernsey Green Finance had the enormous asset of simplicity. You know, basically, they're a straightforward how to do it manual, and that's what we felt in some respects. And that was the rationale we did, probably in the same as yourselves at Cas and Oak Capital. You know, what was required was was not another voluminous 300 page report of august um, sort of like findings, but the real simple. Um, you know, sustainable finance, green finance, ESG 101, so that people, um, you know, save people from the, you know, the confusion of the whole thing. So be very good to share on that one now. Now, I'm conscious that, you know, waxing lyrically on there about Guernsey, but I, I wanted to just take a moment to talk about is that um, I'm well aware that, you know, Casino Capital is a long-standing commitment to sustainability. Um, uh, and what I want to talk about really is 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 maybe a, a pivoting to the lessons learnt from um, from your perspective uh, of an institution that's had that you know decades long commitment. I read recently a report from McKinsey's. Um, it was immediately post crisis, and they were saying that it's the, the interesting thing. One of the questions is is to understand what um, what lessons can be learnt from our reaction to the current pandemic for 
our responses to climate action. So what we can we transpose across learning from our response to COVID-19 into our response to, to climate change. Um, and you guys were, were, were really most helpful when we um, were designing our Guernsey Green Fund rules. Um, so it's you know, understanding that you know, it really was appreciative of the fact that you guys do put an awful lot of thought, uh, thinking and analysis into this. Do you have a particular house view at the moment about how that uh, you'll be trying to learn the lessons from the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, what's been really evident, well, what we all know what we need to do in order to tackle climate change. We need a huge amount of policy changes to incentivise businesses and communities to decarbonise. We need um, change in behaviours, so we all need to drive less, eat less meat, travel less, etc. And we need a huge amount of capital to flow into solutions to, you know, um, decarbonise the grid, electrify the grid and create new and innovative solutions to help with the transition. Um, but the, the reality is that the pace and scale of that change has been incredibly slow to date. And it's often been argued that to initiate that scale of change quickly is unachievable. But what the COVID crisis has shown us is that when faced with a direct crisis, we can have policy changes happen almost overnight. We've all changed our behaviours in a matter of weeks. Um, and a huge amount of capital has been flown into tackling the pandemic. Um, I think everybody recognises that we've had to spend trillions to try and solve and tackle a crisis that could have been prevented for a fraction of that cost. And climate change is no different. And in fact, it's likely to be more impactful, both to the cost of human life and also to the economy. In fact, the World Health Organization has estimated that a quarter of a million people will die annually between 2030 and 2050 due to climate-related challenges and the economic implications are likely to far outweigh the costs of the COVID crisis. So we can see this crisis coming down the line, and we've proven to ourselves that when we need to, we can enact quick change and make quick responses. And we hope that we will learn from these lessons, and in coming out of this crisis, we'll build a more resilient um, future and put ourselves into a foundation that will be better able to pen, um, fend off another crisis down the line. That's, uh, some interesting points there you make, Emily. I mean, that point about you know, the prevention is better than um, you know, resolving things after the event. Um, it, but in terms of you know, we're looking at that and where, where, where the money's going, um, the Energy Transition Commission recently said, I'm, do you have any, uh, that, that um, investing in high carbon activities without climate conditionality, in that it would hope the global economic recovery, we would only prepare the ground for, for more or for future systemic crises, which sort of goes against, you know, which is warning against the, 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 the reaction to, to what you're saying is the sound approach. Do you, I mean, do you sense, do you have any concerns about the, the, the pressure to relax the commitment to sustainability to green and to, to climate uh, change mitigation uh, with the need to you know, get things going again? I mean, and indeed, do you have any commitments about a commitment to ESG in this in the general post-COVID-19 environment? 
So actually, I'm hoping it's going to be the opposite. I think the current crisis has thrown um, certain things into attention. First of all, that when externalities get out of our control, they can completely derail society and the economy, and we need to act to prevent that for the benefit of us all. Um, and second of all, that companies have a huge and meaningful role to play in society, and their actions matter and can help you know, put us onto a more sustainable footing or can prevent that sustainable development. And therefore, if we if we recognise that we need to make progress and develop a more sustainable economy, we need to be focusing on those companies who are helping make that progress and move away from those who are prohibiting it. Um, and actually, we've seen some really exciting developments. Um, many companies are now reliant on government funding to help see them through this crisis. And that funding is coming with green strings attached. The most notable action has come from the likes of the EU and their 750 billion recovery fund has spending that is guided by sustainable finance taxonomies, which aims to channel private investments into technologies and contribute to at least one of six predefined environmental objectives, such as climate change mitigation. They also have an embedded do no harm policy in the taxonomy, which essentially would see the exclusion of the likes of fossil fuels and nuclear power, which is seen to be undermining their environmental objectives. Um, the EU aren't the only ones to be making these moves. We've also seen China and Japan, and to an extent the US, try and incentivise a greener recovery through the likes of tax incentivizations. Um, so we are starting to see policymakers push for um, a transition in business behaviours and promote a greener recovery and the deployment of more sustainable solutions. Um, which is, is really necessary and very welcome. I think we have an opportunity here to build back better and we need to grab onto that to protect the future stability and avoid these future disasters. Now, that's something we're really excited about because as a sustainable investor, it will help drive support for sustainable solutions, um, which both as an investors recognise that there's a financial opportunity here um, with greater policy focus on deploying capital into these solutions, it's ultimately going to create more opportunities for investors, um, as well as a growing desire to use our assets to help support that transition. So I think we've got a demand there and we've got the acceleration and intention and that can be really powerful. I get some good points there. In fact, you remind me, I, was, I, I watched a Bloomberg um, broadcast of Dombrovsky, a webinar with him, obviously the, the Vice President of the European Commission, and he's saying that this is ahead of the package being announced, that uh, whilst they'd have the, the conditionality on where the support would go in terms of ensuring that it was, everything was sustainable, he said a third of the money would be directed specifically and ring-fenced for green projects. So it's, it's, you know, it's a good thing in that respect. In fact, Actually, that helps me because one thing I wanted to ask you about was we're talking about public finance there and public initiatives and such. But one of the questions McKinsey had was almost like a, a JFK type question, which was what's, you know, try and think what steps you as a company and governments and individuals could do um, to align 
you know, to to um, align your response to the to the, the crisis with um, the imperative of sustainability. So it sort of helps me in respect of the theme of our week is the um, it's private capital's role in financing sustainability. From your perspective, from Casino Capital's perspective, what step do you think you know, your private investors might be able to take in, in terms of you know crisis or otherwise? Have you yourselves at Casino Capital reviewed your processes or objectives in servicing clients in the name of sustainability? Yes, we absolutely have. So we just recently revised our responsible investment policies for our core sustainability solutions. And we did so with the idea that we wanted to make our intention to have a positive impact on people and the planet more explicit. And the way in which we look to do this is to avoid assets that cause harm through negative screening and by understanding environmental, social and governance trends, um, by benefiting stakeholders and creating value for those key stakeholder groups through responsible business activities and actively investing in solutions to environmental and social need through an allocation to impact investments. We've also written into our policies a commitment to support the Paris Agreement on Climate Change by reducing total portfolio emissions and using our influence as an active owner to encourage companies to decarbonise, as well as actively investing in green solutions such as renewable energy generation and green financing projects. So we're very excited about this um, and we're, we're hoping that it makes it clearer to our clients that we have this intention and this is how we're going to achieve it. And it also clearly defines to us the kind of things that we want to be investing and our expectations of our underlying assets. Um, we're going to look to... Um, to demonstrate that to our clients by increasing our reporting on the underlying impacts of our investments and enabling them to actually see the way that their assets are helping to contribute. Okay, I mean, that's a good, all good stuff and quite, and quite a lot of initiatives you're referring to there. Um, I mean, I was at um, uh, the Casino Capital Clients event last year in Guernsey, um, obviously by Julian Windsor, where we had Ben Fogel, um, Speaking to, to the audience and uh, waxing lyrically about uh, you know about the commitment to green and sustainable finance and actually you know it invigorated people um, to be thinking thinking in that way. But ultimately, um, I think when it, it's easy to forget when it's when it comes to investors that, that basically their clients are investing their own money um, and you know their own money is the requirement as well as sustainability is an actual uh, demand a return on that capital. And one of the, um, the, the conventional wisdoms, I think, that seems to have developed in recent years is that, you know, both before the crisis and, and throughout it, is the resilience of green and ESG investing, and indeed they're a source of you know, better return in the conventional portfolios. Um, so I just wondered if that was, uh, you know, if that was your, your experience and your perspective too, and do, do you think that that has any impact on the outlook for investor demand for the products that you're and the, the green and sustainable finance products that you're developing? Yeah, I think that's a really valid point. Um, essentially, what this recent market volatility has demonstrated is that companies with more sustainable business practices has once again delivered better returns. Um, and actually, those companies who exhibit superior environmental, social and governance practices 
are actually forecasting lower earnings downgrades going forward. Now, this doesn't surprise us. We've long argued that companies with more sustainable practices will deliver outperformance over the long term. To us, it just makes sense that a business that really takes responsibility for looking after its key stakeholders will be able to um, you know, preserve the stability of the business and generate better and compounding earnings. Um, and we've seen those kind of companies take notable moves recently to protect their employees and make sure that they can mobilize their workforces to work from home, um, as well as ensuring that they can reach their customers in a way that adheres to social distancing rules and preserve the stability of their supply chains, as well as working with the regulators to help support the humanitarian efforts and abide by social distancing rules. Now, these companies are not only demonstrating that they're acting responsibly in the wake of the crisis, but they're also preserving those key stakeholder groups so that when we do get back to a normal environment, they can you know, return to something that looks like business as usual rather than having a depleted workforce and broken supply chains, etc. Um, so what this has meant is that we've now got a great track record for sustainable investment that demonstrates that sustainable solutions have both captured returns on the upside as well as proved more resilient on the downside. And I think that policy changes, and as we've already said, the direction of flow of capital into sustainable solutions is only going to uh, accelerate that going forward. Um, And therefore, I think demand is only going to rise, which is great and proves that, you know, if we all club our assets together, we have far more of um, a likelihood of being able to build back better and create a more sustainable economy. Mm, good point. I mean, um, about, especially about the increase in demand, um, and so ESG investing per se, and the, the role of portfolios in routing capital to uh, better companies, and, and, and so that would be the mechanism by which ca- the private capital flows through portfolios into a more sustainable future. Um, I don't know, you probably won't be aware yet because I think it was only, it's only just about to be published or it was just recently published, but um, Ben Caldicott um, of, of the Oxford Sustainable uh, Programmes, who's uh, leading our first webinar talking about the macro impact, um, he was a co-author of a paper that actually um, referred to the fact that um, at the micro level, firm-wide level, that firms, uh, jurisdictions or countries that have a greater preponderance of firms that score highly on ESG um, perform better at the macro. The, 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 those economies perform better at the macro level. I mean, that's quite interesting because one of my concerns is the, is the whole as an economist is the whole economics of the investment class and how it develops. Like you know whether there are any con, you know, conflicts about the need for a return in the post-COVID world and a desire to invest sustainability uh, sustainably. I should say. I mean, do you have any? Um, do you share my concerns, or you you know do you have a or are you are you confident that that's not the case? So, do you mean that you have concerns that um, investing sustainably would prohibit a, a quick recovery? Yes, in terms of you know we're looking about the the the, you know, the, the need for return, the need to be, to to, to re, um, uh, recover um, the economies, and whether or not the the investment into ESG firms is is something that um, stops capital and portfolio flows into companies that are going to increase employment more rapidly. 
So, you know, so it's where, you know, where is going to be that outperformance um, from an investing perspective? And is that in, in any conflict with the, with the need for longer term sustainable development? Well, actually, if, if you look at things like the EU recovery plans and their incentivizations to build back greener, um, actually, it creates a huge amount of job opportunities. So, for instance, one of the policies is saying they want to see much more rapid regeneration of um of um, company offices to make them in themselves more greener. Now that's going to need a huge amount of um, workforces to um, renovate those office spaces and is going to be creating a lot of job opportunities. In addition, uh, we recognise that the scale of investment that needs to go into the energy transition to actually get it off the ground and create viable clean solutions to energy needs far outweighs the market cap of the companies that are currently operating and creating those solutions. So what that evidence to us is that we need to have new entrants coming into the market to expand those sectors. And that in itself will create new job opportunities. So I think if we do this in the right way, we can not only preserve the future stability of our economy and our planet, but we can do so in a way that accelerates new jobs and you know um, helps support um, economic development today. Okay, oh, yeah, fair point. I've, you know, you, you've, you've convinced me. I mean, it's one of those sort of. Um, uh, I've, uh, I, I sort of flip from one side to the other in terms of my personal concerns, but that's probably because I sort of don't, don't sleep enough at night, that sort of thing. But um, moving on and sort of leaving my um, nocturnal habits aside, you've mentioned it a few times. Um, into you said this, you made the phraseology now that the build back better. And I've seen that hashtagged a few times on social media. And I think this is about a, a policy response about ensuring that the governments work together to sort of and coordinate sustainable recovery. I think I saw a paper from um, with uh, Lord Stern and Stiglitz uh, recently published that was pointing to this as a, as a necessary condition for a sustainable recovery. And you yourself have alluded just now to both the EU uh, policy work, but it's almost assumedly in the UK too. Um, all of this is, is jolly good, and you've, you've touched a little bit onto this sort of like creation of demand, but given the the scale of the public money that's going to be involved in financing the recovery, you've already talked about the, you know, the hundreds of billions of EU money. Do you have concerns for the role of private capital within this? And in fact, how and where do you see private investment portfolios fitting into this overall agenda? Um, private capital investment is absolutely essential. And I can summarise that quite quickly for you. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So it's 17 goals set by the United Nations that will help bring us onto a more sustainable footing, lift people out of poverty, reduce inequalities and tackle climate change and the transition. Um, covers a huge amount of social and environmental ambitions. Now, in order to achieve these goals, there's estimated to be a funding gap of between five to seven trillion dollars per annum that needs to be filled. Now, that is essentially showing to us that it's essential that private capital markets deploy their assets into solutions that help support development of that goal. 
of those goals. Um, so I think there's quite a clear place for private capital investors and a role that we have to play. Um, for us as an asset owner, I think our, our responsibility is twofold. First of all, to make sure that we are doing responsible deployment of capital, um, but also to use our influence as an active owner to engage with companies and encourage them to change their own corporate behaviours and drive progress towards achieving those equalities and decarbonisation targets. Hmm. And um, that's something that Cousin of Capital is pretty active in uh, historically and very much more going forward, I, I imagine. So um, you're absolutely right. The scale of this is, is key. And, you know, you're pointing to the role of private capital. And you know, if you look to the public sector's role about crowding in public cap uh, uh, private capital, it's about reduction of risks and ensuring that you know, the patient capital that is looking for the return through the cycle um, has that secure and stable environment in which to invest. One of the you know, um, sort of issues around that is, uh, for me, is, is is the whole international um, proliferation of frameworks and standards and, uh, and and guides and you know from the professional services bodies to the regulators. It's very small, small scored of stuff, and in fact, it informed our thinking in Guernsey again. Like I said we. We published the Green Private Equity Principles uh, just last week, but our regulated product, we, we have a world-first regulated green fund regime, which is to provide a robust and, and transparent and, and, and integrous um, uh, regulated product that does what it said on the chain to give confidence to investors. But we did that because of this, the, you know, the huge sort of proliferation of these standards and, and, and requirements and rules. Do you have... Any views about the direction of travel uh, we, we, we're creating? Or do you feel that maybe we might be creating a bit of a rod for our own back with all of these various different rules and regulations? Do you see risks with this direction of travel? Yeah, so it's interesting. Obviously, we've got the EU taxonomy coming down the line, and that is the latest in a long line of things that are trying to classify exactly what is green. Um, we think there is value to that. And as you've already alluded to, there's a huge amount of fragmentation and practices and different approaches to responsible investment. And it's become very confusing for investors to identify what's really authentic um, and who is using, you know, potentially controversial um controversial tick boxing exercises to try and um, suggest that their products are green when actually under the bonnet they're definitely not so. Um, in in Casino, we've been investing in sustainable portfolios since the early 2000s. So we've seen this huge trend in the market and the expansion of ESG and sustainability, which is excellent as it evidences that there's been an acceleration in this style of investing, um, which should create ultimate benefits. But it's also meant there's been a rise in you know, managers or fund houses launching products and solutions that are labelled sustainable or impact, which are by no means authentic and a huge amount of evidence of greenwashing. 
So in the wake of that, we think an element of standardization and a requirement to meet um, baseline practices is important and will help give some indication to clients um, about what is actually an authentic solution. But as you say, it does come with some risks. Now, the biggest concerns are that the um, guidelines will become so restrictive that it prohibits, uh, it prohibits any ability to create active decisions or have differentiation of views and essentially only leaves a very small handful of stocks in the market that would be acceptable for investment. Now, that in itself would create crowding and multiple issues. Um, so we hope that's not the route that we end up going down. As it stands, we think there is enough threat in the EU taxonomy, for instance, to enable us to you know, have differentiation of views and find those attractive opportunities. Um, so we're not overly concerned at the moment and we can see the value in having some more stringent guidelines, uh, but we hope that it doesn't become overly restrictive down the line. Yeah, I mean, me too. I mean, we here in Guernsey, we have the uh, what was it, luxury or the benefit or the you know, the general position of being outside the EU and have, have always been that way. And so, you know, not had to actually follow the, the taxonomy implementation in full. I mean, it's, it's a jolly good thing, I think, the taxonomy, you know, trying to move towards a common system of classification. But um, my fear is, you know, when we get to the level of the regulatory technical standards and you know, thousands and thousands of pages, uh, it just makes it all a horrendously costly exercise in what should be something that um, should be simple and straightforward. Yeah, particularly on the climate agenda, you know, are you reducing your carbon footprint? Are you investing in portfolios that reduce the carbon footprint and act in a responsible and sustainable manner is the short form question. It's what we probably need to do. I'm, so we get off my soapbox shortly, is to create some simple um, indicators of that. After all, capitalism worked because you know shareholder return was a fairly measurable uh, concept and quite simple. But anyway, I mean, you're absolutely you know you're right about that about that. In terms of, I I fully appreciate uh, you guys in terms of where you've been on the on the sustainability agenda. I said earlier. You gave us uh, an awful lot of help and, and walked us through your processes when we were designing our uh, green regulated products. It's all designed for us around the, the notion of, of, of drawing in private capital to the sustainability agenda. And that notion of private capital was um, going to be front and centre of uh, COP26 this year. If you, if you cast your mind back a few months when Kenny was appointed strategic advisor um, to the UK government on this, having stepped down as uh, as governor of the Bank of England in January, um, it was it was clear that he was going to. You know, the plan was to make private capital front and centre of the uh, COP26 agenda. In Guernsey, when we talk about private capital, we mean you know private private capital rather than anything that's not public. But do you think we'll see? Um, you know, from your perspective, in Casanova, this is more the general sustainability in the ESG agenda. Do you think we'll say that, at least, or do you hope for maybe perhaps this being a distinct um, theme of, of the agenda, the, the way it's become embedded in the EU sustainable um, uh, program as well? 
Yeah, I definitely think that's the case. So, I mean, you can already see it coming through with things like the 2020 UK Stewardship Code, which has been revised to set even higher expectations from the investment industry. Um, And the code, in fact, explicitly states that responsible investment is expected to create long-term value for clients and beneficiaries, leading to sustainable benefits for the economy, the environment and society. So that code in itself is being very explicit about the intentions of the investment management industry. Um, So with this, we believe that ESG should be standard practice for all managers. It essentially just makes good sense understanding environmental, social and governance trends and incorporating that into your investment decisions enables you to identify risks and opportunities and reflect them in your long-term calls and should only be a way to improve your long-term financial performance as well as helping with um, long-term economic stability. So it's something that we do across all of our portfolios for the benefit of all of our clients. And it's definitely something that we expect to continue to become more standard um, within the investment management industry. With that is then the rise of more sustainable and impact solutions. So that's actually using your assets with a clear intention to create measurable positive outcomes for people and the planet. And that's something we think will accelerate in a growing trend um, as more investors become climate and socially conscious and actually see the benefit of deploying their assets in a way that creates that long-term future stability. As an example of that, Andy, we're actually starting, we've just started to measure the carbon footprints of our core portfolios and not just our sustainable portfolios, but our traditional portfolios as well. Um, And that's been a really useful exercise, both for us, because it then informs our investment decisions. We can see that if we have portfolios with high carbon footprints, they may face uh, additional risks if we do see the likes of um, carbon prices rise and such. And it also helps inform our clients and enables them to make that choice of if this portfolio's footprint is too high for them, they can then elect for a sustainable portfolio, which you know reduces the footprint by up to 50%. That's a very good point, that measurement uh, point there, Emily. I mean, and in terms of us all measuring and all doing our bit, um, it's a bit of a digressive aside, but I'm a... Uh, I, I'm on the board of a local environmental services monitoring company, ESI Monitor here in Guernsey. And what, one of the objectives we have is to try and get everybody to do their bit by actually measuring their um, sustainability as an organisation, uh, as well as you know, the investing your, your, your the financial flows. But you, you know, it, everything begins at home, and we need to make sure that you've got your own house in order first. So it's um, you know, um, very pertinent stuff on the measurement front. Now it's. I tell you what, it's been it's been a real pleasure um, sort of speaking with you over the last four to four to five three quarters of an hour. I I, well, I could probably spend the, the whole of the afternoon um, chatting chatting with you on these, but we probably haven't got the time to do that today. So I'm just going to maybe just wrap up with one final question, um, which is you know, I'm just going to try and tease you up for what your what your views are of the, of the future and our prospects for success. One of the silver linings of the crisis this year was um, the IEA estimated that uh, CHG emissions might fall by as much as 8% this year. And that's more than any year on record uh, that's happened you know, before or since. Um, but 
UNEP estimates that carbon emissions need to go fall by 7.6% annually up to 2030 to meet uh, those Paris targets. Now, that gives you an idea of the scale of the challenge that we, that, that we face. How confident are you, um, both individually and corporately, that we're on the right track in fighting uh, climate change and, and investing sustainably in the post-COVID era? Well, as you highlighted, I think the recognition that we need to achieve a similar reduction in emissions here forward um, is pretty terrifying, given we can't expect that we're going to put the whole global economy on hold every year going forward. So a huge amount of change needs to happen, and that scale of that change is relatively daunting but I think most of us are hopeful that we will use the lessons we've learned from the current crisis and that is the recognition that when faced with something disastrous we can have new policies and we can change behaviours and we can find finance to support the transition Um, so there's a a clear willing or sorry a clear willing from um, clients and investors to use their capital to support the transition. So what we need is for the asset management industry to provide the suitable solutions that enable investors to deploy their capital in a way that's going to help progress that um, transition. Um, and we're, we're hopeful that this, this acceleration will continue and that policy will continue to be supportive and that will mean that together we can all use our capital for good and help it promote positive outcomes. Um, I think as an example of the growing demand that we've seen for this kind of investing, back in 2018 we launched a new charity-specific investment vehicle called the Responsible Multi-Asset Fund. And this was designed specifically for charities who wanted to align their investment portfolios with their charitable missions and invest in a way that creates positive outcomes for people and the planet. Now, this fund has seen huge acceleration in the number of assets and clients investing in it. Um, And this acceleration has far outweighed the level of growth that we saw for our traditional funds at this stage of their their life post-launch. So it evidences to us that this is the way that investors want to be using their assets going forward. And if the industry can continue to provide those solutions, then together we're going to really make a difference and flow capital to where it's needed the most and drive that progress going forward. So I think we're hopeful. Uh, We can see what we need to do. We've seen the lessons that have been learned and um, the clear intention is there. We now just need to follow it through and make that change. Absolutely. And I'm hopeful too. I mean, one of the the things about the crisis, it, it does... Uh, mean that people have to be adapt and become more resilient and, and, and change their uh, change their practices and their processes. So hopefully the, the silver lining is that uh, you know, the experience of the last three months uh, enables us as a human race to to do just that. Okay, well look, I'll, I'll stop there, Emily. It's been a real pleasure listening to you and finding out more about uh, you know, both your personal views on the issues and also the the commitment of Casino Capital and to ensuring uh, that it achieves a positive 
impact on the people of the planet through the management of its client portfolios. It's been, like I said, a fantastic uh, session in discussing, ever, ever insightful. A great start to our Sustainable Finance Week, which you know, for the purposes of the, uh, those listening in, you know, the, the role of private capital in finance and sustainability in the post-COVID-19 era. Um, and looking forward to uh, an exciting uh, series of debate and dialogue online. Thank you very much, Emily. Great. Thank you so much, Andy. Loved being involved and really looking forward to hearing the rest of the podcasts. Thank you.